You may remember when you were a child, just as I remember, sticks and stones may break your bones, but what? Words will never harm you. You know, I used to say that a lot because I was a chubby little boy and I got called fatso a lot. So, you know, mom said sticks and stones break your bones. Those words don't mean anything. Well, they really don't, but they still kind of hurt, don't they? You know, when somebody gives you a a name or says something unkind to you, it kind of sticks with you. Um, And these words are closely related, as as we all know and we think about it, to the attitude that we have. According to the um, Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the word attitude means a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in one's behavior, other words as synonyms which lean towards the same thing as one's disposition, their mood, their opinion, their sentiment, their frame of mind, their outlook, their view, or morale. Well, we all have an attitude. You know, you can look at a little baby, you know, and say, that little baby's got attitude. And it has a different meaning to when you look at a, a seventh grade and said, that kid's got attitude. That's a different attitude than you see in someone uh, that is always happy. Uh, there's so many different varieties of attitudes. I can't help, um, I may have told this story. This is a true story uh, about my mom. It just makes me smile so much if you would have only had a chance to know her. Um, it was, um, my mom's name was Violet and her sister-in-law was Ethel. I always thought it like a Lucy and Ethel because they were about the same way. But um, the Pee Wee Baseball League was really short on coaches one year and the boys weren't going to be able to play if the coaches didn't step forth. And my mama and Aunt Ethel said, we're going to do that for these boys. We're not going to let them not play baseball. So my mom grew up in a family that was, you know, my grandpa was an avid baseball fan. So mom knew the game inside and out, and and Ethel did too. They lived across the street from each other growing up on the mountain. And um, it was game day in 1960. It was before I arrived, so I've heard this story afterwards. Um, There was a new home plate umpire that showed up at the game, and he seemed like a really nice guy. And uh, the coaches shook hand along with Violet and Ethel, and and, you know, the game proceeded, and we went through innings one, two, and three. And there were some not-so-good calls made. You know, when you're, when you're playing ball, it gets a little competitive. And Violet and Ethel were in the game to win it, as anyone else. Well, it got into, the, like, the fourth inning, and there was a terrifically bad call made at home plate. And uh, Coach Violet gave the umpire a piece of her mind. And I'm not completely sure of the adjectives used that day. I don't really want to know. My mom wasn't a, she didn't speak in bad language, but she could, let, she could dress you down pretty quickly. She was an old country girl. Well, after the game, she went home, got up the next morning. It was Saturday. She went to church, and they were walking through the front doors of the church, and there was a new pastor standing there shaking people's hands as they came in. And lo and behold, it was the empire my mom had met the day before. <laughs> She got to display her bad attitude right on the front end. And like, like uh, the, the video we saw this morning, we all have the capacity of giving bad attitudes, and we're not defined by that when it happens occasionally. But we can be defined as Christians if we claim to be a Christian and not have a joy in us. If no one ever sees that, what a horrible thing. You know, but let's face it, a bad attitude's not hard to spot wherever we go, working, shopping, wherever it is. It's one of those things that's even contagious. If somebody's got a bad attitude, uh, you spend some time with them, you might have a bad attitude by the end of that morning, too. 
Um, even at church, you know, you can spot a bad attitude, and it just, it's so sad, because we do, as, as Julie and Debbie saying, we've got so much to be thankful for this morning, so much. Um, I find it, you know, comfortable, uh, uncomfortable and embarrassing. I don't know if you've ever had this happen, when you're driving down the road, and you change lanes, and you're doing something, and people are swerving all over, and you know, the driver gives someone a fist, or waves a fist, or makes another hand gesture, and uh, then you, they pull on up, and it says, join me at church on Sunday. <laughs> I get a kick out of that, but maybe it's just me. <laughs> when life gets hard, it's a difficult. It's so difficult to not let a bad attitude take you over. Uh, you know, uh, people hurt us, past haunt us. Um, co-workers mistreat us, parents may not love us like we think they should, friends don't consider us, spouses don't honor us, children don't appreciate or respect us. So those bad attitudes can infiltrate our hearts. Our attitudes are our outward display of what's taking place in our hearts. When our hearts focus in the right place, our attitudes will too. The only thing we have to lose by choosing a positive attitude is a negative one. Airplanes often use the term attitude to describe their horizontal position as they come in for a landing. And if their attitude isn't aligned properly, the plane can make contact in a way that will cause an accident or a crash. In essence, our attitude isn't out or inward disposition towards other things such as people or circumstances. As with an airplane, attitude is applied whenever you must deal with something other than yourself, just like the airplane going into the runway. Now, the title of the message today is Christian Attitude. We know who that attitude must mimic as believers. But to remind us, it says in Philippians 2.5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. It says you were taught with regard to your former way of life in Ephesians 4 and to put off the old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. I now invite you to, to turn to chapter 5 of Ephesians. And we'll be reading verses 18 through 21. Again, that's Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21. And starting with verse 18, it says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of your Lord Christ Jesus. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, Father, just open our hearts, Lord. We just ask you to, to speak to us this morning through your word. Lord, we need to hear from you or nothing without you, Lord. I just pray that you will give me uh, the words to speak today that would be pleasing to you, Father. Uh, we resign ourselves to you, Lord. Uh, show us your face. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, if we reflect on chapter 5, um, we've been in chapter 5 for a good while. We could say that the first uh, verses 3 through 17 uh, shows us the way of darkness and foolishness. Uh, the command in verse 18 
is not to get drunk on wine, but to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And then the verses 19 through 21 contain five participles that describe to us a result of being filled by the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to call those out. The first one is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Second one is singing. Third, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Fourth, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Last week, Brother Tim preached, and we discovered that being filled by the Holy Spirit is primarily a matter of letting the Holy Spirit control our lives. Let that control our lives. It's not some one-time event. Um, Matter of fact, Brother Tim urged us to pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit daily. And I found myself doing that daily because I want that filling. If I don't have that filling, um, I can't get through that day in a joyful manner or with a good attitude. Again, this is not a one-time event, but rather a process that must continue in our lives moment by moment. It's also that it uh, should not be true for just as us as individuals. This should be collectively as a body of Christ. Um, these are the attitudes that infiltrate our soul and exemplify um, Christ to others. The actions Paul described for us in verses 19 through 21, it should characterize all the interactions of what happens in this place on Sundays, but not only Sundays, but all the way through to the next Sunday. We also see that the results of being controlled by the Holy Spirit involves much more than just singing. But, on the other hand, singing and music certainly be, are a center of what happens in here when we're controlled by the Spirit. As Brother Tim shared, the, the key to being filled by the Holy Spirit is to let God's word saturate our lives. I love that word, saturate. Saturate means it fills every crevice. It's like putting a, a dry sponge into water. When you pull it out, it, you know, it goes in light, it comes out heavy because it's full of water. That's saturating your life in God's word. And when we do that, there is a sense in which we really can't help from singing. Um, I'm going to confess to you that I've not been doing very well reading along with the church in the church reading. I began a week or so ago uh, reading Exodus, which I do not consider one of the best reading chapters in God's Word. But let me tell you, I read it faithfully, and it spoke to me every day. I'm so grateful that I don't have to live under the law that I, I would have never made it. I never would have made it. You look at the tabernacle and all the specific reasons things were placed and instructions made. Uh, it's fascinating. So I encourage you to leap in and read with all of us in Exodus and the Psalms. You'll be blessed. That's not even in my sermon, but please do. Um, Music is critically important. I love it, and my wife doesn't know I'm going to sing it or say this, but when I hear her humming or singing around the house, it blesses my heart because I know who the song is on her heart. It's Christ. I love that. I love to hear someone hum. I love, you know, music is a huge part of our life. It really is. You know, at my house when I sing, I'll sing Andre Crouch. I'll sing, sing whatever. They look like I'm about, you know, they get over it real quick. They tell, shut up, poppy, you know. But there's a song in my heart, and I want to sing it, you know. And we can't keep from singing. 
Uh, the University of Pittsburgh did a, a study a couple years ago that examined 279 of the top songs on the radio. They only looked at references to drugs and alcohol, but what they found is, is amazing. Gangster raps or rap rappers spoke favorably of these items in 80% of their songs. Alcohol's good, drugs are fine. Country music had 37% of its music praising the wonders of alcohol. Rhythm and, blue, rhythm and blues followed with 20%. Rock had 14% of its songs praising drugs and alcohol. And pop music had about 7%. Okay. Now, th that's just a reference to alcohol and, and drugs. But, you know, they didn't examine what some of the other topics are, which we know what those are. It's uh, destructive uh, sexual immorality, vengeance, greed. Um, I would hate to see the statistics on that. Many of the songs that are popular on the radio, let's just face it, they don't lift us up at all. They're not intended to lift us up. They want to have a good tune and a good beat to it, but they're, they're going to speak death into our lives. It's going to be a, a horrible outcome if those are the words that we want to saturate our lives with instead of God's word. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs have the power to transform us. The songs that we sing this morning, count your many blessings. I have blessings I need to count. In preparation this week, I, I read that a gentleman who was in the mission field was a music leader at his church. He went to a tribe in Africa and led that song, Count Your Many Blessings. Or no, actually what he did, he asked the children, what song would you like to sing? And a little girl raised her hand and said, I'd like to sing Count Your Blessings. Well, he was jolted because the little girl had a partial nose and no ears. She was completely deformed. Count your blessings is what she wanted to sing. That fellow wrote that he never sang that song the same again. We must count our blessings. We have so much to be thankful for. If we could fast forward into time 25 years from now, we'll say these were the good old days. We're living in freedom. We can sit in this gym and praise the Lord together. I can speak his name, but I'm afraid to say there is a time coming where we'll have to pay a price to do that. I believe that. I love in the book of Acts. This is one of my, I, I'm a real visual person. Acts 16 is one of my favorites. We're told that the time Paul and Silas were arrested for preaching the gospel. They were arrested. They were beaten, chained, locked in a jail cell where their feet were fastened in stocks. How do you think they respond? How would you respond or I respond? I wouldn't be too happy. The pain of their beatings, can you imagine being beat? I've never been beaten. Uh, my mom's whipped me and my dad's whipped me a few times. I'm borderline beating, but <laughs> I deserved every one of them. Can you imagine the terror of a jail cell that, that, that was filled with rats? Have you ever had close contact with rats? They're nasty animals. They really are. My brother was in Vietnam, and he took, always said in the military, he took night shift because... Um, and you, at nighttime, you couldn't see if a rat was going to crawl up your, your pant leg or not. He said he took the day so he could open the, you know, it, it just, I can't imagine. Um, they, Paul and Silas, they didn't even know what their future was. But what did they do? They started to sing. Can you picture that, the jail, just being, you know, you hear other inmates moaning and groaning, and you hear two guys starting to sing. 
Acts 16.25 tells us that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. What a visual. What a powerful thing. There's so much that happened after that, and I invite you to go to Acts 16 to see what happened. And the rest of, what was the result of that? Was it just two guys singing a couple of songs? It turned into a powerful testimony. I invite you to read. Did their singing create that earthquake? No, it didn't. It was their God that did that, that they were singing to. When they sang, they declared their faith in a faithful God who could do stuff like that. Their singing was like a faucet. When they turned it on, it opened up the pipeline of God's power. And so God says, sing. He says, sing. He says, sing because you have a song to sing. We all have a song to sing. I don't care how bad it gets. There's times it's hard to sing a song. Believe me, I can understand that. Music and singing are necessary to Christian faith and worship for the simple reason that the realities of God and Christ, creation and salvation, heaven and hell, are so great when they are truly and duly felt, they demand more than just a discussion. You're going to break out into song. Singing is a Christian's way of saying God is so great that nothing else will suffice. Now when we say music, is that any music? There's, there's certain things within the music that we have to be cautious and aware of. The music has to be centered on God, the one that we're singing to. Um, in this short passage that we looked at in, in Ephesians, um, we can't help but notice all the focus here is placed on God. It mentions, to the Lord, to God the Father, in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I'm certainly not telling you anything new. There is no one here that's going to argue that the focus of singing should be on God himself. But as he often does, Paul doesn't just leave us with the principle. He gives us some practical instruction on how to apply it. It flows from a heart that has been, again, that word we love, or I love, saturated with God's word, singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart. Paul makes it really clear that the kind of music that pleases God comes first from where? It comes from the heart. In other words, it requires something more than just mouthing the words to some particular melody. One day as Jesus was speaking to the crowds, um, Jesus emphasized the importance of being careful what we store up in our hearts. In Luke 6.45, it says, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in our heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, his mouth speaks. And that's true of you and I. What's in our heart comes out in what we speak about. Although we can come here on Sunday morning and sing the words of a song without having our hearts properly prepared, that's not the kind of singing that pleases our Heavenly Father. Perhaps a better test of what is in our hearts is what we sing the rest of the week when we sing because we want to, not because we were pressured into it. Again, the way that we prepare our hearts is by immersing our life into each other's life, into the life of God, into prayer. Um, the, 
The benefits of that far exceed anything you can ever ask or imagine. You're walking with the king of the universe when you're in prayer and reading his word. Nextly, the kind of music that pleases God, it recognizes the sovereign goodness of God. Sovereign is one of those words we don't speak very often, but I think that verse 20 tells us it kind of precludes what uh, our worship should be. In 20 it says, We should always be giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. So, that's a pretty tall order, don't you think? It says all things. We, We are to give thanks to God always and for everything. That doesn't leave out much, does it? Does that mean I'm going to give thanks to God when a loved one dies or when I lose my job or when the doctors just told me I have cancer? How about when a marriage is on the rocks? I know it says always and everything, but surely Paul didn't really mean that, did he? The only possible way that I can always give thanks for everything is that I have to have trust in the sovereign goodness of God. I have to stake my life on that and his word and believe that it's true. When he states in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things God works the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. There is absolutely nothing that happens in the universe that's outside of God's influence and authority. Do you hear me this morning? As king of kings and lord of lords, God has no limitations. Consider just a few things from God's word. If you don't listen to anything else, listen to God's word in these verses. God is above all things and before all things. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He's immortal and he is present everywhere so that everyone can know him. That comes from Revelation 21.6. God created all things and holds all things together, but in heaven on earth, both visible and invisible. Colossians 1.16. God knows all things past present, future. There's no limit to his knowledge for God knows everything completely before it happens. Romans eleven thirty three. God can do all things and accomplish all things. Nothing's too difficult for him. He orchestrates and determines everything that's going to happen in your life, my life, in America, throughout the world. He knows Jeremiah 32, 17, whatever he wants to do in the universe, he does, for nothing is too hard for him. God, he's in control of all things and rules over all things. He has power and authority over nature, earthly kings, history, angels, demons. Even Satan himself has to ask God permission before he can act. Did you hear that? Our king's far superior to our enemy. That's what being sovereign means here. It means being the ultimate source of all power, authority, and everything that exists. Only God can make those claims. Therefore, it's God's sovereignty that makes him superior to all other gods. And him alone is worthy of worship. As we immerse our lives in scriptures, we come to realize that God is indeed good and that he's able to take even the most painful and sorrowful and hurtful things that occur in our lives and turn them into something good. I could go to every one of these tables and I know there's believers that can see the same thing. I know I've been able to speak of the adversity in my life and how God's used it for the good. I will continue to tell those stories until I go to Norman's funeral home. 
because he has been good to me. As we, as we talk about the music, the music has an aspect that I noticed even this morning. It has a horizontal and vertical aspect to it. When we went a cappella this morning, I love you, Lord, it really made my hair on the back. I only have a few hairs back here, but it made them stand up because it was beautiful. It had impact on hearing you all sing, and the, God was pleased. He loved that. He loved it. The voices didn't necessarily sound all that pretty, you know, because I don't have a pretty voice. Um, it reminds me of a wedding Julie and I went to in Fort Wayne. It's probably been 40 years ago. We played in a band, and we were supposed to play in this wedding afterwards. But, Julie, you may remember this. Um, the bride came down the, the aisle and made it to where the groom was, and she broke out as a surprise to the groom into a song. Now, it sounds beautiful, but let me just tell you, if Simon had been there, mm, mm, mm. she's flattering a pancake. It was the worst voice I ever heard in my life. I mean, I to this day remember it vividly. It was horrible. But you know what? That groom looked at that bride like he, she had just sang the most beautiful melody to him. He had tears in his eyes. He loved hearing it because it was from her heart. That's the way our worship is to our Heavenly Father. He doesn't listen to the voice. He knows what's in the heart. He knows what's there. We also need to remember that Paul's readers did not have their own copy of a King James Bible at the time. Much of the New Testament still hadn't been read, and even the Old Testament wasn't available to the masses. So they often used the singing to one another to memorize scriptures and truths about God. And it's helped me to do the same thing. I love singing scripture. You know, I won't sing any for you right now, but I know some songs that are scripture. And on my own, I will sing those. And they speak, speak to my heart when I sing them. It testifies to God's goodness. And you know what? Music's a great tool to bring uh, people together. It was a couple of Sundays ago, Marilyn, you were playing on the piano, and we were gathering up to, to pray. And you were playing a song, and all of us started singing. Wasn't that a beautiful thing? It, it united all of us, and we were singing around the piano God's Word. And it just, it was not planned, but it was really cool. It united us together. Uh, music has a way of doing that. Um, you know, when you go to the, the uh, ball games and they sing the Star Spangled Banner, a lot of people don't sing, but those that sing, it just blesses my heart and it does unite us. Um, I know that we went to a, a one-game football game of Valia's, and there was only one person besides maybe a couple that were singing. He was probably a World War II vet that couldn't even barely stand, and it was the most beautiful tune I ever heard because he was singing out of respect, and his heart was, uh, you know, in the right place, I, I'm thankful for the country, the free country I live in. It was a beautiful thing. So music that pleases God incorporates both our vertical relationship with God and horizontal relationships. I believe the three preceding verses, 18 through 20, prepare our hearts for 21, which is the source of our behavior and our attitudes. For from the human perspective, I think this verse is the hardest one to absorb. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Lord, the Spirit. Speak and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God and the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Just the word submitting kind of smacks you in the face, does it not? Submitting, you know. Um, but let me just tell you before I say anything, if we can't submit to Christ... We can't submit to anyone else. 
will never be able to. It's like trying to break a big old dog in. If that dog doesn't learn to submit, it's never going to learn anything. If it doesn't learn to submit to its master. So we have to submit to our master in reverence of Christ. So how do we avoid, you know, the immature behaviors? You know, we heard the little fella talking this morning about, you know, he's been, um, he's seen bad uh, attitudes. We've been giving bad attitudes. Well, I believe that as we sing together and as we encourage one another, it becomes easier to submit to one another in the reverence of Christ. The New American Standard reads, and to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. King James Version says, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. Submission is in essence a synonym for obedience. In its most general use, it means to yield to another's admonition or advice. In scripture, it appears in context describing servitude, humility, respect, reverence, honor, teachableness, and openness. All of these things have one basic purpose in mind. They fulfill our obedience to our Heavenly Father. The concept of submission is used by biblical writers to describe a, a variety of Christian relationships, which our sermons are going to go towards those in the coming week. We won't go there, but submission is a big topic in Ephesians. You may not think of it this way, but submission is an act of love for, not for God, for ourselves, and for others. It's not loving to allow someone to, allowing someone to abuse you. Never think of a submission that way. Submitting to one another is certainly not a submission to one another's person's sins. It's not that either. It's not about being a doormat. Those are kind of the misconceptions. It is a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, and doing what is best for others. In John 13, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, it says in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Verse 14, now that I, you Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do this as I have done for you. Remember, there was one disciple that sat there during that foot washing. It was one that was not a likable person. It was one that wasn't an obedient to, his, uh, to Christ. All of them had stinky feet, but there was one that just denied Jesus Christ. He went around and cleaned all those feet. I think that's an important thing to look at. It's easy to submit to people that we think are good people, but it's hard to look at other people's best interests that have stinkier feet that we think than ours. I believe that, that freedom or that submission fosters freedom. Real freedom is the ability to lay the burdens always uh, down to always get our own way. I want to get my way. Do you want to get your way? It's kind of just we're born with that. Uh, there's a pastor and author by the name of Richard Foster that writes this. I think this, is, this is, says it better than I can. It says, the obsession to demand the things that go the way we want them to go is one of the greatest bondages in human history today. People will spend weeks, months, and even years in a perpetual stew because some little thing did not go as they wished, and that can last for years. They will fuss, they'll fume, they'll get mad about it, they'll act as if their very life hangs on that issue. They may even get an ulcer over it. In the discipline of submission, we are released 
to drop the matter, to forget it. Frankly, most of the things in life are not nearly so important as we think they are. Our lives will not come to an end if this or that will not happen. So submission leads to freedom. Galatians 5, 13 and 14 says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through the service of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, submission is the essence of Christianity. We cannot read the New Testament without coming across the call to lay aside our desires at times for the good of Christ and one another. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take his cross and follow me in Mark 8.34. We're getting close to the end. Paul said of his life in 1 Corinthians, though I'm free and I belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means, I might save someone. Friends, learning to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is the best thing we can do for ourselves and others and for Christ and his church. May God's spirit move us in a way that molds us and makes us like Christ who had a submissive spirit. No matter who we are, we must learn to submit to God and to authorities and to each other. What are our takeaways this morning? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you filled with the Spirit of God? How does your attitude measure to that of Christ Jesus? Are you allowing the Spirit to give you power in the inner man that you've never had before? To be thankful. To be able to sing a song in the midst of the trials. As a body of believers, are we a Spirit-filled church? Our singing and worship is not how we feel, but, and it's not whether or not uh, we feel like it. We're here to glorify God. Another question, are you speaking to God about, uh, to others about God, about Christ and what he's done in your life? We should speak with great thanksgiving about our God, giving him praise and glory through Christ. Everywhere, this is the last sentence, everywhere you go, people are touched by awareness that there is something living in you that is different and divine and they want what you have when you're a follower of Christ. That is a result of being filled with the Spirit of God. He is the spring of living waters. And when you soak in that stream and you're constantly in it, you're going to let that river flow through you. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I am grateful for your word, Lord, and I'm I'm so sorry for where um, I have not, and I'm confessing to you, Lord, I have avoided reading passages just due to my own stupidity, Father. Lord, may I, each person have a thirst to know you more, to get into your word. May the songs flow from our hearts to our lips. May people see Christ in us. Uh, may we learn, Father, as a collective body of believers, Lord, that you can use us 
in this dark world, Father. And I thank you for each person at every table and those listening um, on um, the internet, Father. I thank you for all of them. Just use us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.